I love getting up here and finding someone else's sermon. Um, <laughs> maybe I'll read it. It's good. It's a good one. Did you just hear our vicar read the gospel? Could you hear that? If Jesus isn't careful, he's going to get himself killed. That's what they're saying in Mark 1. Mark 1, the first chapter of Mark in the beginning of the story. If Jesus isn't careful, he's going to get himself killed. That's what the gospel is about and what it's for, and it's what the church is for. So on this day of our annual meeting, if you are visiting us, actually, if you're visiting this church, would you mind just raising your hand? Um, God bless you all. (laughs) And everyone, make sure to say hello afterwards. Today is our annual meeting, which means it's our parish meeting for the year. So we have to pass a budget in about an hour, and we've got some other agendas. Um, So God bless you. We're glad you're here. We hope you come back. Um, (laughs) This is also the year to tell you about the year that's passed and the year that is to come and who we mean to be. And the readings are tough. And the church knows that we do this at this time, that one of these services is going to be the annual meeting. And ideally, if we're smart, not on Super Bowl Sunday, right? Like right around here. (laughs) And did you hear this about what the church is for? And that's what they're trying to put together for us, who we are supposed to be. In Deuteronomy, hear this. The people are wandering in the wilderness, and it is horrible, they say. God is leading them directly by a pillar of fire, by a bright light, at night, there is God in front of them, leading them to freedom. It's the metaphor and it's their reality in that story. They're being led to their freedom and they say it's too much. We cannot bear to be in the presence of God like this all the time is what they say. Can you imagine? I I, I feel like it would be amazing, I think, I don't know. They say it's too much, we can't do it. We can't face the struggles of our own liberation, our own demons our own deep demons of our history of enslavement or of our ancestors' history of enslavement, of having to rely on the earth itself for our sustenance, having to look to the sky to hear the voice of God and wonder where God will lead us day to day. We say as Christians that's actually what we want. We pray in the morning asking for that. We actually have a prayer book full of services to guide us gently through with words someone else has thought through to lead us directly into that place. But do remember, do we remember that in Deuteronomy, the people say, oh, please, let's stop doing this. It's very, very difficult. It's painful. We need a place to know that our children will have enough food, have a good Sunday school program, right? Be warm and safe, have a future better than the one that we had. That's what the people are saying. And God says, if you must, if you must, God is clearly insulted. You can hear it, go back and look at it in your bulletin. God is angry, but says, if you must, then I will send for you people to tell you the truth, and they're going to make you really, really mad. Listen for them. And what will hold them accountable is that God says, I will strike them down if I don't like them. That's Deuteronomy. That's the reading they thought that we should have for this day. But isn't that something, that it is terrifying to be in the presence of God and what God calls us to because there isn't stability in it. There isn't security in it. And what do we seek primarily but stability and security? So the people from the beginning, and remember, I'm reading this book on why the Bible exists, why we have it, why a defeated people wrote this book. 
So interesting, right? Why would a defeated people in exile, this book was written in Babylon, why would they tell us this story? I don't think to say their ancestors were fools. I think to say this is really hard. It is really hard to know what the will of God is for us and to follow it. It's really difficult. What are the practices? How do we hear a prophet? How do we hold those who claim to be prophetic and are merely divisive or self-centered or self-absorbed or need a bigger jet or something like that, right? How do we hold that accountable? That from that time, they're struggling with this. And then Paul says, in relationship to this, if you're going to have these communities that help us discern what God wants for us, if we're not, not going to face God directly, that's too much. How do we do it? Paul says, there is only one God. He's a pure monotheist, not just my God is better than your God. Paul is like an early Joseph Campbell. There's only one God, is what Paul is saying in the reading we have today. Only one. And if other people have barriers to that, if other people have other ways to go, unless it's a problem for them seeing that one God, whatever, he says. He doesn't believe in the power of them, right? He believes in the power of powers and principalities, forces of evil in the world. But Paul says there is one God. Paul kind of says, lighten up and be a friend to others who seek God, right? Choose to do that. And Jesus walks into the temple today and the evil spirits recognize him. Take a minute with that. Why are we supposed to hear that today? Not the good people, not the seeking people. The evil spirits call him out. They know his power in Mark. There's a, a, an understanding of Mark that it's a whole journey with evil power, with evil, with, with pain, with things that oppress. And Jesus steps up to it over and over again and calls it out, is not afraid of it. So you can kind of hear what the church is sort of called to today. It's not that, not that complex, right? That we have a truth to proclaim and we have a truth to proclaim as a community that we've all said, the face of God, right in our face all the time, is so demanding, is too much. And I want you to think about that, because if you think that's not true, then I'm going to say you're not looking at the face of God yet. Me too, all of us. It's not the comfort solely. It's not the healing solely. It's the thing that challenges us. Those people in the wilderness were not fools. They left Egypt with nothing, right? They had survived for many, many years. They had been chosen because they survived and decided to be together. And they said it's so hard. And the place of what was hard for them was not, we will send a greater comforter, we will send a greater food supply, right? That's not what happened. A prophet, because it's the truths of the gospel that are the hardest. It's the truths of who God calls us to be that are the hardest. They require prophecy, a prophet. Prophets are irritable by definition. They make everybody mad. Nobody likes a prophet. That's how I know I'm not one. I want people to like me, right? <laughs> Prophets are just tough. They say the hard things over and over and over. We say the modestly hard things in church. So here's a, one way to think about this. Sharon Browse, whose book we're going to be reading in Lent, and who's I think an article from it has been excerpted for the New York Times. I think it'll be the religion book of the year. She's a rabbi in Los Angeles in a community called ICAR, I-K-A-R, that she founded with some colleagues and is now just a massive uh, community of, um, of uh, pr progressive Jewish people in, in Los Angeles. 
this book um, has come out this year, so that means it's been in preparation for a year, so what a moment to come out, frankly, um, as a rabbi to have a book come out. Um, and the book begins with, very early on, the story of her own journey towards becoming a rabbi at JTS, um, which is across the street from Union um, and by Columbia in New York. So right, that's where I went to school as well. And like Union, JTS kind of asks you to ask your big question, what, what do you care about? Why are you here? And she said she remembers a piece from, uh, from a midrash, from a study, that was just intriguing to her, but she didn't know why. So she read it, read it, read it, studied it, studied it, studied it, wasn't sure why she cared so much about it, kept it, pulled it, like copied it or something, and stuck it in a book so that she'd remember it. And that she found it recently. And here's the story. It is a, an old midrash, and it was from back when, when you could return to Jerusalem and to the Temple Mount for pilgrimage. Some of you read this because it was in the paper. It's beautiful. And the way you returned, and like these old stories, you wonder if anyone ever did it, but oh, it's so beautiful, right? Is that you would go to the Temple Mount, and you would walk up the stairs, so grateful that you could return. Maybe you had saved money for your whole life. It reminds you of people saving to go to Mecca, for like, reminds you of our Muslim friends. And the ceremony sounds like the current Muslim ritual, that you go there, and you go up the stairs, and you go to the right, and you begin to walk, and you make a big circle with everybody else that has so gratefully returned from all over the diaspora, and you walk, and you say your prayers, and you offer your gratitude, and you are at the site where David and Solomon knew to build a temple, the holy, holy house of God, and you walk the circle. It's enough right there, and it definitely sounds like going to Mecca, doesn't it? You make this circle. There clearly is something in all of our traditions about standing up and walking together, right? Making this journey together. So they, you do that. Now, if you are someone who has had a great loss, if you feel that way, when you come up, instead of going to the right to say your thanksgivings and your prayers and go this way with the cr crowd, you go this way. You go to the left, which means you're going to slam right up against them, right? You go this way. And so if you're walking to the right and you are saying your thanksgivings and you have come back to the place of your people and you see someone coming at you from the left, you look them in the eye and you ask what has happened to you. This is recorded as the ritual. And the response is you, um, you ask what has happened, the person tells you, and then you say, may God bless you, may God comfort you. And you keep walking. It's quite something, isn't it? that when we go to the holy place and we make our thanksgivings and we stand in those great processions, that we keep looking at one another. We're not afraid. Now where this community has power, this St. Luke's community, is we are not afraid of loss. You can cry in this room. This room has borne many, many tears. There's someone that told me they came here and sat in the back and cried for a year before they could stop, right? This room has borne it and you can tell. You can feel it here. We know how to say, what has happened? May God bless you and comfort you. We know our words are inadequate, but we know our look and our touch and our presence is power. We know that here. It's a great gift of this community. The challenge of the church, I think, and Sharon addresses this really well, which is why I want us to read this book, is we've, we, literally, we've got that part, and that's a hard part, but we've got, that is one of the gifts of this church. But the next part, and she says, the work is us, right? Our own grief, and it's always present, it's always coming. Our own loss, our own histories, and our capacity to comfort one another that we refuse to put down. We will look at each other. 
that you go from there to then who are we as a community? How do we do that at the level of this structure? And that's always a journey as well, right? How do we face the brokenness of the world as this church? What is our responsibility as people of faith? We're gonna study that. Now, um, Kate Kennedy sent me this article this morning. You guys are wild. It's an article on how the church is just dying. You know, uh, it's the, the whole church, not just, not us. Um, the, 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 New York, the New York Times, you know, that tons of churches are just emptying out. So they're figuring out what to do with these buildings. You know, do you house people who need housing? Um, do, you, do you make enough money that your church can survive into the future? Um, do you create services or entrepreneurial? Well, what do you do? So that's in the Times this morning. So yeah, we're, we're actually doing that kind of work as well. What does it mean to be St. Luke's Atlanta on seven and a half acres in downtown Atlanta with about three of them serving as surface parking currently? We're doing that work. What would it mean to look the wounds of the world in the eye? The wounds that come right to our door and say, every day I'm hungry, I'm sick, I'm cold, I'm mad, there's nowhere to go, I don't have a place to live, I can't pay for power at my house. Every day. It can't be that the solution is every day we write another check, though we do, and we will, and we should, and we give sandwiches, and we provide aid. But it's just foolishness, as Dr. King says. Shouldn't we just go up that Jericho Road a bit and see why there are so many people lying in these streets? And that is the work of justice. And that is our work as a church as well, because the needs of the world come to us because we're here in this beautiful spot that this church has agreed to stay on, right? Decided we will be here, where the needs of this city show up for us. We will look people in the eye and say, what happened to you? And we will do our work so that we understand why that happened to them. Why? That is the work of the church. And she does a great job of saying, okay, here's us one-on-one, -on -one. we will care for one another. And then here's us institutionally, we will care for our city. Here's us as the church, we will care for our church. What is our witness to the Episcopal Church from this place? One is that we're not dying, so maybe there's something to learn from us here, right? Maybe there's something to learn right here about the choices you all have made over the generations that mean that you're thriving today and continue to. And then there is this great work when the needs of the world come to us that Catherine Meeks tells us to think about, is what are the deep, broken places in our society because frankly, what Catherine and others have told us is our politicians won't solve those. The people design, you know, that do public policy don't get to. They don't get to, get to. they don't get to go to the spiritual brokenness of the nation. Our presidential candidates don't get to do that. Occasionally, we have a senator who can speak to that. But besides that, that's not how it works, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's our friend. She's our friend, right? But that's our work. And one... A lot of you in this room have a lot of power. A lot of you watching have a lot of power. I don't mean to overstate the power of the church in you know, showing up at the Gold Dome or showing up in DC, but let me not understate it as well. Right? The great moments in our history when we are proud of who we are as a nation, every single one of them, begin in spiritual leadership. It is about making us whole again. It is not always the most, it's not an economic argument, right? It's not a political, solely a political power argument or a regional argument. It is about the soul of who we are as a people. And we are people who believe we have a soul as a nation, a soul as a people, a soul as a church. And churches with this kind of heft, frankly, when you are robust as a St. Luke's Atlanta, you don't get to just be for yourself. 
You've made an institution that is too big to just be for itself. Congratulations, right? What an opportunity. But it means we do it together humanely. We are not enemies among one another here. That's just not true. And if your instinct is to look for an enemy, if that's where you're hurt, then let us meet you with what happened to you. We can do that. We can even bear some really ugly conversation if we need to do that. We can do that. Those are the muscles we will build. We will practice that together. And if you're saying, oh, not me, then you don't do that. But others of us will do that. What happened to you? Because we have to be our best selves to be the world we want to be, right? So Sharon Browse's story is that that circle goes around and around, and these people are coming this way. And I wonder if in this moment in our history, more of you are coming this way than those of us coming this way. That's possible. There could just be hurt constantly. That's the work. And in this great Southern culture and in church culture, in Protestant church culture, we tell you to be happy all the time. Be nice and smile. Be pleasant, right? Wear your black shoes, Gabby Thomas, right? Be pleasant, be, be presentable. So I'm going to invite you not to be. Now, don't be rude. You don't have it in you anyway. Don't be, you know, we're not trying to hurt each other. But we don't have to pretend it's okay all the time. It's okay. We can bear some grief. Like, we can do that. Let us do that. We can hear the truth of things that are wrong. We can work hard together to build the kind of society we want to be. So Sharon's story is, what is this passage? And at this point in her life, she reads it and says, oh, this is the passage at the heart of all of my ministry, right? How do we stand with each other? She knows this many years later in her congregation. My question when I started out is, what is diverse church community? What does it mean to really be multiracial together? How would we do it? It's clearly what we must do as the main line, this church that they say is dying, really diverse. And I feel like coming back to that quest, coming to St. Luke's has brought me back to that. What does it mean? How do we do it right? Not just superficially, not just to make, the, make it look good that we've got our points right, that we're the right kind of brand of church for people to want to come to. What would it mean for the church if we were a place where you could come and bring yourself and your real history, whoever you are, whatever kind of body you occupy, whatever your history has been, and we could receive that and grow with that and say what happened to you and maybe you would trust us a little to actually hear it, to be people you could trust with those stories because it makes a more powerful church community, doesn't it? It makes a little sampling of the society that we say we want to be. It's a society we work for where, you know, you can walk down the street from here and find a Title I elementary school, elementary school, multiples of them actually, if you go in different, gener different directions, which means those children are hungry, which probably means their parents grew up hungry and their parents and their parents, and some of that is an, a legacy, most of that of enslavement in this country. What if we could actually engage that here? Super, not superficially with just a sandwich today, what happened to you and your family? What happened in this city? I think we can do that. I think we already do it. We have wonderfully done it for generations. You do it, many of you on your own without the church, many of you in this church. What I'm going to ask is that we actually take the resources of this place and let's apply it to the great problems of this world and to the brokenness of our hearts in this so conflicted year ahead. It's going to be a tough year, you guys. It's going to be so tough and we will be a place of hope and joy and promise in that year, this year, not because we deny anything, but because we can say the truth here, and I can promise you it will be a relief 
to say your truth here and know that this community can hear you. Now, you know, in Mark, it says that those evil spirits recognized Jesus, and it's a chiasm, the biblical scholars say, immediately he went to the synagogue, immediately he starts to speak, the spirits hear him, the spirits rebuke him, uh, speak back to him, he speaks back to them, immediately they go somewhere else. The immediately sounds like us, doesn't it? We're always in a rush. Those evil spirits speak and come among us and divide us and break us and tell us to be quiet. And then someone says, let's build a backyard together and let's get a barbecue and let's gather everybody and let's read some books and let's stay present. And let's continue to do it. In this beautiful space where God speaks, it says, Jesus speaks and those silenced demons wait. Right there in the teaching in the center is us right at the heart of the chiasm, right where Jesus says Jesus is with us and the evil is at bay for just a moment so that we can go back out into this world. We can do it. We are doing it. We are walking the great circle together and there will be loss and there will be change and it is so hard, but let us do it together for in truly facing who we are together and we can do it, we can actually, I bet in this community, face the word of God directly if offered that, but since we only get prophets, let's listen for them. Let's not be afraid. There is only one God, Paul says. Let us not be an obstacle for all those who seek the healing of that God in this place and in the world. St. Luke's, we have a remarkable year ahead. Let us be a blessing. Amen.